the book of Exodus, what story comes to mind? Just shout it out. Moses? Hmm? The Red Sea, did I hear Red Sea? Please tell me I heard somebody say Red Sea. Princely? Yeah, Red Sea. All right, this morning we are going to be looking at probably the most well-known story in the book of Exodus, and that is the crossing of the Red Sea. And of course, that's a, a long, that's one story in the long story of God delivering Egypt out of captivity. And where we were last week, of course, we saw in Exodus chapter 12, uh, we saw how God delivered Israel. Of course, he had sent the nine plagues to the land of Egypt. And it was interesting is during those nine plagues, and of course, you know, there were the flies and the boils and the hail and the river to blood and the frogs everywhere and, you know, the cattle dying and the locusts coming. And there were just nine terrible plagues. And, you know, as you study each plague, it's like each plague uh, attacked a different god of Egypt. But it, it went deeper than that. It was God punishing Egypt for their treatment of Israel, his son. Matter of fact, when before the plagues even start and Moses goes before Pharaoh, Moses, when he comes to Pharaoh, he doesn't say, hey, God said, let my people go. He did say that. But he also said, God said to let my firstborn go. Israel was God's firstborn. He loved them like a father loves a child. And he, he even told Pharaoh, let my firstborn go or I'm going to take yours. And of course, Pharaoh didn't listen. And so God sent these nine plagues to really show Egypt that God was the one true God and to show Egypt how powerful he was. But it was also for Israel's benefit. You know, Israel has been in captivity for 430 years. They've been slaves to Egypt. For 430 years, God has been silent. They've cried out to God, but God's not talked to them. And even in this time, uh, God only talked to certain people at certain times. He talked to Abraham. He talked to Isaac. He talked to Jacob. He, he spoke to Joseph and he spoke to Moses, but he, he didn't really speak for the entire nation to hear. Now, he tried to do that at Mount Sinai. And if you've been watching along with our word of the days, you saw Israel kind of rejected, not wanting to hear from God and said, we'll just hear from God through Moses. And so God wanted to speak to the whole nation, but they've rejected. But that's a couple chapters later. But so God hasn't, it's not that he hasn't spoken to Israel. He's not spoken to anybody in over 400 years. So Egypt has, uh, Israel has been slave, enslaved in Egypt, in their culture, with their gods for 400 years. And they've cried out to God for deliverance for 400 years. And they've, they've lost such faith in God that when Moses comes to Israel and says, God sent me here to deliver you, they said, we don't believe you. God hasn't spoken to us. God's not around anymore. What does God care about us? And so they didn't even believe that God wanted to free them. So God sent the plagues, not just to punish Egypt and not just to show the power of God to Egypt, but he sent the plagues to show has his power and his protection for Israel. Because while Egypt is suffering under these plagues with the frogs and the flies and the fleas and the boils, Israel's not. They don't suffer through them. They're protected by God from these plagues. 
And God is showing Israel, not only am I strong enough to do these things and powerful enough to do these things, but I love you so much I'm going to protect you from these things. Then he sends the final plague, the death of the firstborn son. Now this plague, Israel has to do something. They have to find a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb. They have to sacrifice that lamb and take that lamb's blood and put it on the doorpost of the house so that when the death angel comes through, and there's, there's more they had to do. We saw that last week. But when the death angel passed through, he would see the blood and would pass over that household. So every house that had the blood was spared and every house that didn't have the blood, which was all the Egyptians, every household, the firstborn in that house died. And not just a firstborn child. And I know, you know, some of you older daughters, like, was it just firstborn boys? Nope, girls got it too. Sorry, Charity. So the girls had to die, the boys had to die, the firstborn had to die, but also every animal. So the next morning, Egypt wakes up, and every Egyptian household, from Pharaoh all the way down to the lowliest Egyptian servant, every house is dealing with death. They've got dead children. They've got dead animals. They're just, they're broken and they're, they're dealing with death in an incredible way. And so Pharaoh, he's heartbroken. And he finally, he calls Moses in and he says, enough. We're, we're done. I, 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 I agree now. Your God is the one true God. I can't stand against him. Just get out. And so Israel leaves Egypt. They are free from captivity. And they're not just leaving free. They are burdened down. Because Moses, when he goes to Pharaoh, he goes, well, you know, we don't know how long we're going to be out there. So can we borrow some stuff? And so the Egyptians give them all their gold, all their silver, give them livestock, give them, give them all kinds of clothes and, and supplies. And so Israel is leaving Egypt and they are laden down with the riches of Egypt and the riches of, of the culture. And the Egyptians are just, just heartbroken and glad to see these people gone. But can you imagine as an Israelite walking through the city, the streets of the city capital? You're free. Man, you just want to, you just want to rejoice. You just want to shout to God and praise God. You're free and he's, he's given you all this stuff. But you hear the cries of all the moms and dads who have lost their children in Egypt. It's kind of a, a bittersweet time. So Israel's free, and Genesis 13 begins with their freedom. Now, of course, in Genesis, in Exodus 13, now up to this point, God has shown himself or revealed himself to Israel as a deliverer. He's shown them that he is going to deliver them from captivity, going to deliver them from what's enslaved them. And that's important for Israel to know at this point. There's other things about God they're going to have to learn. But right now, God just wants to show them, I'm your deliverer. But he's also showing it to us. He didn't just deliver Israel. Even in, even in the book of Exodus, his deliverance of the nation of Israel wasn't just him delivering Israel. It was him delivering us because you remember way back in Genesis 12, he promised Abraham through your family, I'm going to bless the entire world through your family. I'm going to bring the redeemer 
who's going to die for all of man's sin, not just a lamb for a family or a lamb for a nation to cover their sin, but I'm going to send the one who is going to die for all the sins of all of mankind and deliver everyone in the world, not just the nation of Israel, not just one family, but I'm going to deliver everyone from the bondage of sin and of death. In Exodus... Where we're at in Exodus now, Israel, but again, they, they have no real sense of who they are. You know, it's interesting when you study the, study the scriptures, you know, this whole through the Bible study, I've really seen a lot of connections and a lot of things I've never seen before. For instance, we all know the nation of Israel, even after they're delivered from slavery, this generation just struggled trusting God. They just struggled with idol worship. I mean, you know, next week we're going to see where they get to Mount Sinai and they get to the Ten Commandments and then, you know, 40 days later they're breaking the commandments by making golden calves and other gods and they just struggled with idol worship. But if you notice, Moses never did. Why not? I mean, Moses was born in captivity just like they were. He was raised in a pagan household in, the, in the, the house of Pharaoh, where Pharaoh was considered a god. And they had all these other false gods that they, that they worshipped, but, but Moses never struggled with that. Well, if you look at the scriptures, when Moses fled Egypt, and he went to the backside of the desert, he went to Midian. Right? We all know that he went to Midian. Well, who were the Midianites? The Midianites were the children of Abraham and his second wife. Not Sarah, not Hagar. Sarah's dead. Hagar's gone. After Sarah dies, Abraham, at very old age, gets married again and has three more kids with this other woman. You know, this is his second wife. We forget about her second wife. But you know what? One of her children was a father of the Midianites. The Midianites worshipped the God of Abraham because they were raised under Abraham. So they worshiped the God of Abraham, the way that Abraham worshiped it. They believed in one God. So when Moses leaves Egypt and goes to Midian for 40 years, and, he's ready, and he, he grows up almost, kind of learning from his father-in-law and his, his new family, he learns about the God of Abraham. So he's had 40 years to get rid of his idol worship. Israel hasn't. They're brand new at this. They just come out of captivity. They are just hearing about God, really, for the first time in generations. They are learning about what God, what God says, what God has for them. They're kind of remembering these promises that they were given and were passed down generation to generation. But by now, they're like, we can't believe those promises. We're slaves. So their, their identity is wrapped up in Egypt. The paganism, the idol worship. The self-pleasure and the self, everything's for me and I don't care about anybody else. I just want to please myself. That's what they're coming out of. That's what they're wrapped up in. And that's what God has to get out of them. So Exodus 13 is God beginning to introduce himself to the nation of Israel again. To show them not only what he expects of them, but his, he's showing them his character, and what they can expect from him. So he's, he's beginning to shape his people. 
And of course, in a couple of chapters, he does it by giving them commands to obey, giving them the Ten Commandments. Pretty simple commandments, really. I mean, it's just ten simple things, and they make a lot of sense morally to everybody. I mean, no matter who you are, atheist, agnostic, Muslim, you know, Christian, we all can agree killing's bad, stealing's bad, you know, adultery's bad. We, everybody can agree with these things. And so the laws that God gives them aren't, you know, super restrictive and, and super harsh. It's just, hey, I'm the first one is, I'm your God, you're my people. Have no other gods before me. Don't worship any false idols. So he's trying to establish what their relationship is. And so he's shaping them and he's shaping us into a kingdom of priests that are meant to share the good news of the work of Christ. So we're going to see today how when God frees us, like he freed the nation of Israel, how he shapes us into a distinct people that can he, use, he can use for his honor and for his glory. Now, last couple of weeks, we've been reading the scripture and kind of telling the story and really just getting into it and then having the points. We're going to tell the story as we get the points today because I want to show you what God does for us. So here's the first thing that God does for us to shape us into the people that he needs us to be for his honor and for his glory. Number one, it's on the screen there. He consecrates us. Josh, it's on the screen there. He consecrates us. Look at verse number chapter 13. I want you to start looking at verse number one. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn. Whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. Now that word sanctify is the same word as consecrate. It means to, to set apart for a purpose. See, being the firstborn had incredible meaning in this culture. And we, we've seen that, you know, throughout the story so far, how the firstborn son gets the blessing, the firstborn son gets the inheritance, how, you know, Jacob, he wasn't the firstborn and he steals the birthright and he steals the blessing and it causes all kinds of trouble. And then Joseph, who wasn't the firstborn, was receiving the privileges of the firstborn and it caused so much problem. So the firstborn in this culture was very, very important. It was a position of privilege and a position of prominence. Again, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, he tells Pharaoh to let his, God's firstborn children go or God's going to take his firstborn. The inheritance, the authority in the family line, it goes through the firstborn son. And God is letting Israel know that all of this belonged to God. Because him saying, hey, set aside the firstborn, that's mine was him saying, set aside all your hopes, set aside your future, because the future resided on the firstborn. Your security was based on the firstborn, his ability to get a job and take care of the family. Your, your prominence, your position in culture, put aside everything that you deem valuable, that you deem important, because it's mine. See, consecration is the, was the idea of taking something, an item, a person, a people, and setting them aside for a holy purpose. 
God, as his children, has consecrated us. Doesn't mean he's just sprinkled some spoofful dust on us and made us holy and, oh, these are holy because I sprinkled my fairy dust on them. No, no, no. God says, I have taken you and made you holy for a reason, for a purpose, for something for his glory. We are consecrated to God as his children. We are set aside by God for the purpose of one, worshiping him, Remember last week, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God wants you to let his people go so he can go out and serve him and worship him. So God wants us to worship him. He set us aside to worship him, but he's also set us aside to serve him. Simply put, we belong to God. We all know that, right? How many of y'all, that is a new idea? I belong to God? Nobody. We know that. I've said it so many times. I've preached it so many times. When I say, we belong to God, we're like, yep, sure do. Here's the thing, though. That truth that we belong to God should be the frame, should, should, that, that truth should be the foundation of everything I do in my life. Every decision I make, every response I give to someone, See, simply put, since I belong to God, then everything I have is a gift from God. I am bought with the price. I belong to God. Everything I have belongs to him, and he has gifted it to me. I am not my own. I am God's. My car is God's, which I like to remind him of when it breaks down. God is your car, dude. Fix it. My house is God's. My family is God's. Everything I have is God's, and he has given it to me for his honor and his glory. And this, this, this belief, this teaching is seen throughout the New Testament. You know, we are consecrated to God, we are set apart by God for the purpose of God, but I believe Romans 14.8 probably says it the clearest. So look at Romans 14.8, it's on the screen here. It says, for whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord, whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. That covers everything. You're alive, you're God's. You're dead, you're God's. You're in between, you're God's. Whether you're alive or dead, you belong to God. We are his and we belong to him. And so everything in my life is rooted in the reality that I am not my own. That changes how I look at my marriage. Because my marriage is not mine. My marriage is God's. I belong to God. April belongs to God. We have made a covenant before God to love and cherish each other until death do us part. And so my marriage is not mine. So I have to look at my marriage and say, God, this woman that you have given me, she is yours. You have given me this relationship for your glory. So God, how do I treat her? How do I respect her? How do I interact with her? And I have to look at God's word and God says, I'm to love her. Like Christ loves me. Like Christ loved the church. Jesus gave everything to me and to the church. So I'm supposed to give everything I have to her. I'm supposed to love her like he loves the church and gave himself for it. 
So that's a, that's a humble service where I say, okay, God, you've given me this marriage. I'm supposed to treat her and love her like you loved the church and like you loved me and gave yourself. So God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve her and I'm going to love her and I'm going to protect her and I'm going to guard her. And Lord, I'm going to use your word to determine what my marriage looks like because my marriage isn't my marriage. It's for your honor and your glory. That changes how I treat my kids because my kids aren't mine. They're God's. Now come tax time, they're mine because I need that deduction. But every other time they're God's. Or if they're really bad, they're April's. You know, whenever our kids are bad, you know, Connor or Alexia will do something and she'll say, you're not going to believe what your children did today. Like they're, I wouldn't, why are they mine? I'm not even, I wasn't even here today. How are they my kids? So I say, oh, no, 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 they're not my kids. They're God's kids. Tell him what they did. But see, my kids aren't mine. My, my kids are God's that God has given to me to steward for his kingdom. And so as a parent, I belong to God and my kids belong to God. So I allow God to tell me how to raise my children. And he says, don't provoke your kids to wrath. Don't get them angry just for the sake of getting angry. You know, love your children. And my job is to raise them in the nurture and admonition of God. My job is to teach them about Jesus and his majesty and his glory and his love for them. You know, since I'm consecrated to God, my money's not mine. My money is God's. And so I allow God to tell me how to use my money how to steward my money for his kingdom and for his glory. And that's the basis of Christian generosity. All I have, all I've been given, my, my money, my house, my car, my head, everything I have, it's not mine to have as a prize to possess and, and show off how wonderful and how lucky I am. It is, a, it is given to me as blessings to be stewarded for God's kingdom and for his glory. See, we are a free people because we understand that nothing is ours. It's all God's. Everything I have, is, it's not mine. It's God's. So God gets to tell me how to take care of it. God gets to tell me how to, how to, how to treat it. God gets to tell me how to use it for his glory. And that takes a lot of pressure off of me because I say, okay, God, this is yours. How do you want me to use it? How do you want me to, to, to use it for your kingdom and your glory? But see, our flesh battles that. Our flesh says, I worked hard. I earned that job. I earned that money. It's my money. I'll do with it what I want to. I use my money to buy my house. You know, God ain't paying the mortgage. I'm paying. That's my house. I'll do what I want to. You know, I got. The, I earned this woman. I, I won her over. She's my wife. I'll do what I want. These are my kids. I, I'll do what I want to. And our flesh says, this is mine. I'm going to use it any way I want to. When, when you loan someone something, like you loan them a tool. And I'm not talking like a hammer like a miter saw or a chainsaw or, you know, a lawnmower or something. You, you loan them a, a nice tool. You want them using it however they want to use it? No, whenever I loan someone tools, I'm like, I like hey, be, you know, don't, especially like chainsaws, because I, I, I need a new chainsaw because I loaned my chainsaw to someone and they broke it. 
but it's a family member, so I can't be mad at them, right? But anyway, so you say, hey, you know, be sure don't, don't, don't cut in the dirt with a chainsaw. You know, if there's, you know, you know, somebody's like, oh, I'm cutting down this tree that's kind of hanging in this fence. Okay, well, when you're cutting around the fence, can you be careful not to hit the fence with my chainsaw? When you're using my lawnmower, can you be sure you're not running over huge rocks in your yard with my lawnmower? When you're borrowing my truck, that's one reason when my, my old explorer, Eddie, God rest his soul, I love that truck. When he died and I got Dora, you know, when I got, I was looking at another vehicle, April's like, you should get a truck. I'm like, I don't want a truck. Why don't you want a truck? Because when you have a truck, people want to borrow your truck. Or people want you to use your truck for, and I don't want to do that. You know, when I was in college, I had a truck, I had an old Ford Ranger. Well, it was a, it was a Mazda B3000, but it was just, you pop the hood, it's Ford, it's a Ford Ranger. You know, had a, the crew cab or the, the extended cab in it so you could put the jump seats down there. And uh, I had a guy borrow my truck to do a job. He's like, you know, I'm there just a couple months. Hey, can I borrow your truck? Yeah, you can borrow my truck. Well, a couple hours later, he calls me. He goes, hey, uh, I broke your rear window in your truck. I was loading some stuff up and chunked something through it and broke that window. Am I supposed to fix it? Well, I didn't break it. So yeah, you're supposed to fix it. He got mad that I expected him to fix it. But when you, when you loan someone something, you expect them to treat it the way you would treat it, right? You don't borrow someone's car and give it back to them filthy and on empty. Look, even if you get it filthy on an empty, you borrow someone's car, you give it back clean and full. That's just what I think. You treat people's stuff the way you want them to treat yours. And so God's the same way. God says, look, your life's not yours, it's mine. You don't have the right to treat it however you want to treat it. Your, your money's not yours, it's mine. You don't have the right to use it however you want to use it. Now, God gives us freedom to say, hey, I can use it for joy and, and use it to, to have fun. But God says, yeah, your money's mine. And so, hey, take the first of it and give it to me. And then use it well for your family and for your, and for your, your health and stuff. God says, you know, your body's not yours, it's mine. You can't abuse it any way you want to abuse it. You have to treat it my way. We are consecrated for God. The first thing, you know, the, the Israelites had spent 400 years in the Egyptian culture that would teach them, your life is yours, do what you want to. So when God frees them, the first thing he tells them is, you're, you're not your own. You're mine. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bless you. But you need to understand, I'm doing that because you're mine. You belong to me. And so I want you to understand that truth and live in that truth. So the world tells us we do what's best for us. But God says, no, no, no. You don't get to do what's best for you because you're not yours. You belong to God. We are a consecrated people. Now, after God reminds Israel that they belong to him, he, he begins to shape their character and shape how they view him. And he uses a few things. He uses festivals, feasts, and fasts to kind of mature the nation of Israel in their relationship with him. So the first thing he does is he consecrates us. The second thing he does is he calls us to remember. He calls us to remember. Look at Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse number three. And Moses said unto the people, 
Remember this day in which he came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by the strength of the hand of the Lord brought you out from this place. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. So God, I mean, they're, they're still in Egypt right now. God has led them to a place, and we'll get that in a minute, but God is, God is leading them to a place where they're in between two mountain ranges and the Red Sea. They don't know what God's doing it for, but God leads them. They're still in Egypt, and God said, Moses says, hey, God wants us to take some time and every year remember how he delivered us from bondage. Remember how he protected us from the plagues. Remember how his Power and his love for us did incredible things for us. Look at verse 4. This day came you out of the month of Abib, and it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he sware unto thy fathers to give thee a land flowing with milk and honey, that thou shalt keep this service in this month. Seven days thou shalt eat unleavened bread, and in the seventh day shall be a feast unto the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and there shall no leavened bread be seen with thee. Neither shall there be leaven seen within all thy quarters. He says, don't even have leaven in your house for a week. And thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, this is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. And it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand and for a memorial between thine eyes that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth. For with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. Thou shalt therefore keep this ordinance in this season from year to year. So God wanted his people to remember what he had done for them and to remember that now they belonged to him. And this was a powerful way for the people of God, not only to remember what he had done, but teach it to the whole family. Because again, he says, look, you're going to do this every year. And one day your kid's going to ask, dad, why are we doing this? I mean, one day, you know, you're going to sit around the dinner table and your family's going to come in to eat and the kids are going to come in to eat and you're going to get ready to have this meal. And, you know, your son's going to look at you and go, hey, dad, where, where are the rolls? Where's the homemade bread? Where's the biscuits? And you say, oh, we don't have biscuits or rolls this, this week. This week we're, we're eating this. And it's just, it's, it's pita bread or it's a cracker. You know, this, and I know we kind of think of the saltines because that's what the Seder crackers are. It really, it wasn't that hard. It was, it was actually probably pretty good. Anybody ever had naan bread from an Indian restaurant? Naan bread? Man, you get naan bread that's just hot. That stuff will melt in your mouth. You just want to smack your mom. It's so good. But this was just kind of unleavened. It's just regular flour and oil, and it's kind of a flat pancake bread. And so it was just kind of flat blah bread. And so you tell your kid, we're not having that this week. We're, we're going to eat this this week. Why? I mean, all week long, we're not having any, any good bread. We're just having this stuff. Why? Well, because years ago when we were broken, we were beaten down, we were enslaved, we were, we, we were hopeless and felt worthless. God came and he delivered us in such an incredible way. And he, he did it so quickly that our bread didn't even have time to rise. And so we had to leave Egypt. We fled captivity. We left burdened down with the riches of the, of the nation. And God freed us in an incredible way. And he did it so fast. We just, we didn't have time. So we just take some time every year to remember 
what God has done for us. This, of course, was the institution of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and it was celebrated every year to help them remember. If you study, and we'll get it, we'll, we'll, in the, if, when you study the book of Exodus, you see a lot of them. Throughout the book of Exodus, man, there were, there were all kinds of feasts. There was, of course, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There was the Feast of the Passover. There was the, 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 just all kinds of feasts and festivals that God, throughout the year, said, you're going to do this every year at this time. You're going to have this feast to remember this. Every year at this time, you're going to have this festival to remember this. Every year you're going to have this, this you know, Sabbath day atonement. You're going, to, you're going to have this to remember this because God wants us to be a people who remember his grace and his mercy on us. You know, the world, world will make them think, hey, you know, we're the king of our lives. We delivered ourselves. We did all this. The feast reminded them, no, God's your king. God's your deliverer. God's your protector. God pulled you out of the pit and God delivered you. The one thing to know is, it's one thing to know that God delivered you and to theoretically and to, you know, in our minds, know that God lifts us out of the pit. But it's another thing to feel it and to celebrate it all the time. You know, the purpose of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread had more meaning than just Israel's, you know, quick salvation from Egypt. When you make bread... And you add the yeast, you put the yeast in there, and you got to let it bloom, and then you knead the bread and you let it rest. And when you're letting it rest, you know, it starts to, starts to rise. You know why it's rising? Because the yeast is eating the sugar in the, the, the flour, the sugar you added, and it's digesting it, and it's burping it out. And that, that digesting the yeast and burp makes the bread rise. Y'all want to eat something that your kid burped in to make a rise? No. It's a process of decomposition. So yeast and leaven reminded them that their sin was destructive. Their sin was killing them. But God in his love and his mercy, he came, he freed them, and he protected them, and he forgave them of their sins because the, blood, the lamb shed his blood. Look, that's why it's so important, especially as families, that we let our kids know why we do what we do. Why do, why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? I mean, look, we had it last week and we're going to have it again in, a, you know, in, in about, about a month or so and we're going to let the kids come in because I want the kids to know this is why we do the Lord's Supper. Because thousands of years ago, we were lost without hope and condemned to hell with no way of saving ourselves. And so God took on the form of the man and was born of a virgin and he lived a perfect life. He completely fulfilled the law because I never could and he lived a perfect sinless life. And then when he was 33 years old, he allowed himself to be put on trial for me. He was found guilty for my sins. He was nailed to a cross and he was beaten and, and, and just massacred and hung on the cross and hung between heaven and earth for my sins. 
God looked at him and poured my sins out on him and then, then poured the wrath of God for my sins out on Jesus. And Jesus willingly paid the price for my sin with his blood and he died and was buried, but he rose again three days later to redeem me to God the Father. And I want to remember that. I, don't re I want to remember what it cost to save me. And I want my kids to know, hey, this is why we do this. That's why I love Advent so much. Because we, we do Advent here with the candles, but also we do it at home, and I encourage you to do it at home so your, your kids can say, hey, you know, yeah, I know this is Christmas, and you're, you're asking for you know, the latest technology or the latest video game or whatever. You're asking for whatever. But you know, Christmas isn't about Santa Claus and the big fat guy coming down the chimney to, to give you presents every, every year. Christmas is about the fact that when we were condemned, when we were hopeless, God came to us. But it also shows us that, yes, God came to us as a baby to die for us. But when he left, he promised to come back. And that's why it's so important we teach these things to our children. So that our children grow up knowing, hey, this is, why, why do we go to church on Sunday? Because gee, God said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Because Jesus rose again on the first day of the week, Sunday, and we come together on the first day of the week, Sunday, to, to re remember and to worship the risen Savior. We're supposed to do these things to remember. God wants us to be a people that are consecrated people. That we, He wants to remind us that we belong to a faithful God. So not only does He, he call us to remember, thirdly, He compels us. He compels us. Look over in chapter 13. Look at verse number 17. <clears throat> Connor, can you, you're making a little... You're irritating me, so I'm sure you're irritating other people. Shh, don't make noise. Look at verse 17. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, peradventure, the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. I want to stop there for a minute and show you the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. God has just sent nine plagues to break Israel, to break Egypt, sends a 10th plague and Egypt's finally like, fine, take this stuff and get out. And God says, I'm going to take you to the land I promised to Abraham. The land that flows with milk and honey. But I'm not taking you right now. I'm taking you the long way. Because I can take you there in just a few days. But if I take you there now, as soon as we get there, you're going to see the Philistines. You're going to see the enemy. You're going to see the battle that you're going to have to face to claim this land. And you're not ready for that. Because when you see that, you're going to freak out and you're going to run right back to your slavery in Egypt. And he didn't want them to do that. You know, you may be in a season in your life where you wished God would hurry up and get you through what you're going through. Sometimes God, in his mercy, takes you the long way. See, Israel was weak. They were beaten down in slavery. If the first thing they encountered was the Philistines, they would gladly return to the chains of slavery. Before God wanted them to see the enemy, he needed to shape them. 
He needed to mature them. He needed to strengthen them and grow their faith and their trust in him. So if you think God's taking you, taking his time leading you through a wilderness, praise him for it because he's guarding your heart. He's preparing you for something you're not ready for right now. See, doesn't, God doesn't take the quick way that leads to destruction because he loves you. He takes you the long way where you complain and you murmur, but he does it because he loves you. Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse number 18 in chapter 13. <clears throat> but God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. So even Joseph knew. Hey, God, and Joseph, Joseph didn't die, you know, with Israel in slavery. He died with Israel getting the best of the land because the Pharaoh that he served loved him and treated Israel well. So he died when Israel was doing pretty good, but he still said, God's not going to leave you here. God, you're, you're here for a reason. You're here for a while, but God's not going to leave you here. And when you leave, take my bones with you. I'm going to haunt you. He didn't say that, but he said, you know, take my bones with you because I don't want to be here either. Uh, look at verse number 20. And they took their journey from Succoth and encamped in Etham in the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day nor the pillar of the cloud by fire by night from before the people. So God is leading his people through the wilderness. Now he could have very well told Moses, Moses, here's, here's where I want you to go. I want you to travel northeast up here for three days and take a left at the, the Sphinx and go another three days. And he could have given him directions. He could have let him know. He could have just spoke to Moses and Moses just keep walking. Like he did Abraham. He told Abraham, I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. And when he got there, God said, now you're here. Abraham didn't have a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Abraham just had God saying, hey, keep going. I'll tell you when you're there. He could have done that to Moses, but he didn't. He said, I'm going to lead you exactly where you need to be. And he gave them the pillar of cloud by day which helped them, you know, in the desert. It shielded them from the sun. Then the pillar of fire by night because it kept them warm in the desert because the temperatures plummeted. But it wasn't just to keep them cool and keep them warm. It was for them to see that's where God's leading us. God says, "Go." the, the fire's going that way, so we're going that way. You know, it's easy for us to read that and think, man, that'd be nice. I come to a decision in my life and say, God, what do I want to do? Oh, fire's over there. That's where I go. Okay, great. It'd be easy to say, oh, God, where do you want me to go today? And there's, well, the fire's right there, so let's just, let's just follow the fire. But we have something so much better than that. We have something so much better than a pillar of fire to lead us. We have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit... He does the work of illumination as we read the scriptures. How many of y'all are, you're, 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 you're doing pretty good in your reading through the Bible this year? You're, doing, you're being pretty faithful. How many of y'all have gotten to Leviticus yet? 
what is Leviticus about? It's just like, I know everybody gives up on Leviticus because you get there and you got, you know, the weave offering, the wave offering, the, the, the Thanksgiving offering, all that stuff. You say, man, what is this for? And see, I came to a Friday in, in our whole story Bible reading program. Monday, we start reading Leviticus. And I'm doing the word of the day, you know, going along with what we're reading. And so, you know, I was looking at the schedule and I recorded it Friday because I recorded it Friday and it posts Monday. And so I'm looking Friday like, okay, what are we going to study Monday? Leviticus. Oh, Leviticus. So I had to read Leviticus 7. And I read it. And I thought, what in the world am I going to say about this? What am I going to say about this praise offering, this wave offering? What does that have to do with it? How is that going to encourage someone? And so I read it again. But before I read it again, I said, God, this is your word. And Lord, you say, that all of it is beneficial to me. And you say that every jot and every tittle and every paragraph and every, every sentence and every book is for my good and for my correction and for my edification. So God, Lord, I just read that and I don't see how. So God, I need you to show me what you want me to see in this, this chapter. So I read it and man, watch Monday because it's good. I read that and I thought, Lord, praise the Lord. I got something out of Leviticus 7 that is beneficial to me. Now I got to get ready for, you know, the rest of the chapter of Leviticus. I got to do that every day. God, it's Leviticus again. I don't get it. You tell me. But see, I don't have a pillar of fire showing me what God wants me to know. I have the Holy Spirit of God inside of me as I read his word saying, hey, here's what I want you to see. You know, the Bible says the Holy Spirit's primary purpose is to show us the truth of God in God's word. So that we, and that's why you can read the same chapter, the same psalm, the same story over and over and over again and get something completely different every time. You know, because I'm, as I'm studying through the whole Bible, I'm like, what new am I going to come up with out of the Red Sea? And God says, let me show you something. We have the Holy Spirit to not only illuminate us of what God wants for us in the Holy Scriptures, but he's also there to convict us when we do wrong. See, Israel had the pillar of fire to show them where to step, and they had the law of God to say, thou shalt not do this. We have the Holy Spirit of God that's inside of us that when we think about doing something or want to do, the Holy Spirit says, uh, you shouldn't do that. You know, we, people call us their conscience. That little voice that says, I don't think you should do that. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit. And then when you ignore it and do it anyway, that little voice that says, uh, you did wrong there. You got to make that right. That's the Holy Spirit. He's convicting us. He's guiding us. He's comforting us. And he's helping us as we go through life. See, the issue isn't that we don't have the presence of God leading us as a fire like Israel did. The issue is we don't listen to the Spirit of God or the Word of God that we have inside of us. Yeah, Israel had a physical, visible representation of God to lead them through the wilderness they faced. But we have something so much better. We have the Word of God with us and the Spirit of God in us to guide us through the wilderness that we face in our life. Our problem is that we neglect the word of God and we ignore the spirit of God 
and then we complain when we get lost in life. I don't know what God wants me to do. Did you ask him? Did you go to his word and say, God, I don't know what to do. I need to, you need to show me what you want me to do in this situation. Well, no. Well, then that's like blaming, you know, the Google Maps when you get lost, when you don't listen to it. It kept saying turn left and I just turned whichever way I wanted to and now I'm lost. It's a map's fault. No, it's not. It's your fault. You didn't listen to it. So we have the spirit of God and the word of God to compel us to follow God. Fourth thing we see is God covers us with his power. Now flip over to Exodus chapter 14. Now, God, we just saw God has led them to a place in the wilderness where they have nowhere to go. They're between two mountain ranges and they've got the Red Sea behind them, but they don't know why and they don't really know that there's any danger. Look at verse number 10 in chapter 14. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them and they were sore afraid and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. So I want you to imagine the scene for a moment, all right? Israel has just been let out of captivity. They were slaves, now they're free. They were poor, now they're laden down with the riches of Egypt. They've gone out of, they've left the capital for a few days and God has led them through the wilderness and they're just praising God and just celebrating and God leads them to this place where, you know, they're kind of camped out and they have mountains on each side and, a, and they may think, hey, you know, we don't know why God has us here. We're obviously not going to stay here forever because we can't go anywhere else. So maybe he just wants us to camp here and praise him for a while. And so they're just, they're sitting down in camp. I don't know, maybe they're, they're counting all the gold they got from Egypt. They're looking at all the spoils of what God has done for them. All of a sudden, they, they start to hear something. You, what's that noise? Sounds like wind. No, it sounds like a, sounds like a train. And they don't even know what a train is. Like, sounds like a train. You know, so, what's, that, what's that noise? And they look up, and they look down the only path they have to get out of this area they're in, and they see Pharaoh and hundreds of his chariots. And at the, chariots at this time were like tanks. They were deadly. A well-trained chariot soldier could wipe out hundreds of people on their own. So they look up and they see hundreds of the most well-trained, most powerful soldiers in the world on these horses with these chariots bearing down on them. And remember, every one of these soldiers has lost a child. They're furious. They're looking for vengeance. And you're stuck with two mountains on each side, the Red Sea behind you. You're not a warrior. You made brick for a living. You've got your kids with you. You've got your wife with you. You've got your elderly parents with you. And you've got, you're, you're doomed. You have no hope whatsoever. And immediately they cry out to God and they complain about what God has done for them. The first thing they do is they panic and they lose all faith in the God they had just seen deliver them by killing the firstborn in every house. The God they had just seen, you know, deliver them by sending plagues to hurt 
Egypt and keep them safe. The God has just led them with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud by day. The God they've just been praising. Now they say, why did God bring us out here just to kill us in the desert? Look at verse number 11. <clears throat> and they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken away, uh, hast thou taken away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast they dealt with us with dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. What an incredible statement. We'd have been better off slaves than dying as free men than dying as God's children, than dying as God's people. God had just finished showing his incredible power and his incredible love for them. He, he'd freed them from 400 years of slavery, and now they're thinking, man, we were better off as slaves when they beat us and hurt us and mistreated us and killed our little boys. We were better off there than we are right here. Moments ago, they were jubilant, but now... They're looking at Moses saying, we were better as poor, mistreated slaves. So they, what they're doing here is they are accusing God. They're looking at God and saying, you said you were good, but you're not good. If you were good, we wouldn't be facing this. You said you were going to deliver us, but you didn't deliver us. You said you were going to keep your word, but you didn't keep your word. Now, put yourself in God's shoes. If you were God... And you just freed this nation and took care of this nation and provided for this nation. And now the first sign of trouble, they turn their back on you. What are you going to do? If I'm God, I'm like, okay, fine then. Let the Egyptians kill you. Forget it. I'll find somebody else. I'm God. I can start all over. But that's why I'm not God. That's why some of you can sit here and not have lightning fall down and strike you when you, you know, fall asleep on me or disrupt me or something. So he responds in an incredible way. Look at how he responds in verse 13. And Moses said unto the people, now remember Moses is speaking for God, God speaking to Moses. And Moses said unto the people, fear you not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the, which I mean, I'm like, he showed it to you yesterday too. But anyway, he'll show you today for the Egyptians whom you have seen today you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. That, that phrase there, hold your peace, it literally means be quiet. And it doesn't mean I'll fight for you, shut up. It means I'm going to fight for you so you don't have any reason to cry out in fear. You can just be still, be quiet. I'll take care of you. I'll fight for you. So what does this show us here? First thing it shows us, got a few more subpoints here. It shows us that God is faithful when we are not. God is faithful when we are not. This is incredible to me. You know, their accusation, they are accusing him of not being good, of not being God. And God says, I know it's hard for you right now. You're not, you don't know what I'm doing right now. You're scared right now but I'm going, to, I'm going to be faithful to you even when you're not faithful to me. 
God covers us with his power when we are faithless. He is faithful to us. And that's a, that's a stunning revelation. Now, look, I know as I was reading this, I thought, well, why did, why did God not want to take them through, Philist, through the, the area of the Philistines? Because if they saw the Philistines and they saw the battle, they'd get scared and want to run back. And now, you know, first thing they do is they're, they're facing a battle against the people who just enslaved them. Why is he doing that? We're going to get to that in a minute. But, it, you know, Israel right now, they, they feel unworthy. They feel like God's punishing them. They feel like God can't deliver them. But God looks at this grumbling, idolatrous, complaining people, and he says, just, just calm down. I'm going to take care of this. But it goes deeper than that. God, after he speaks to them, he puts himself between Israel and Egypt. And he stops Egypt from advancing. He protects his children and then he gives him an escape plan. Look at verse number 23. <clears throat> and the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. So, you know, at this point, you know the story. God has told, told uh, Moses, says, just hold your, hold your hand up over the sea and I'll, I'll, I'll part the Red Sea and you will pass through the Red Sea on dry ground. And so he, he keeps in, uh, Egypt at bay. He hold, you know, Charlton Heston, Moses holds up his hand and a strong east wind comes through all night long and blows the Red Sea to parts it. And so the Bible says that when Israel walked through on dry ground, that the water was, was built up in, in walls on either side of them. So they're walking through and there's just these huge walls of water. I've seen a lot of people try to explain how this happened. I saw one, he said he was a believer, but he was, he said that if, if there's a certain point in the, a part in the Red Sea where at low tide, you can walk across the Red Sea in knee deep water. I thought, wow, that's, that's neat. And he says, you know, at high tide, it's, it's above your head. So he says, what happened was Israel walked through on low tide and then when Pharaoh started going through, the tide came in and just drowned them all. And I thought, well, you know, that's one, one theory, but God didn't say you're going to walk through the Red Sea on knee-high ground, knee-high water. He said, you're going to walk through on dry ground. And the Bible says when they walked through, the, the water was in, just in heaps on either side, just walls of water. It's an incredible miracle. And then they get through and Pharaoh decides he's going to come through. So again, it says, and the Egyptians pursued. So Israel's gone through the Red Sea. God's let the fire down, and now Egypt is pursuing Israel through the Red Sea. And it came to pass that in the morning, watched the Lord, looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire of the cloud, and troubled the host of the Egyptians, and took off their chariot wheels, and they drave them heavily. So they're coming to the Red Sea, and God, you know, takes off their wheels. Now they're going even harder. So that the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against Israel the Egyptians. And the Lord said unto Moses, stretch out thine hand over the sea and the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horse, horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its strength when the morning appeared and the Egyptians fled against it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And the waters were a wall under them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. 
And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So again, that, that incredible story where God sends the east wind, they walk through on dry ground. They've got the water on each heap. The Egyptians start coming through and God knocks off their chariot wheels. And you know, it's funny, he knocks off the chariot wheels. As soon as that happens, they think, you know what? Maybe this isn't a great idea. God's fighting for them. Let's go back. So now they're trying to walk back. But God says, Moses, you're all through. Go ahead and shut the water up. So he puts his hand over there and the walls just crash down upon everyone. Now, immediately after this, the Israel sings praises to God. Because again, they wake up the next morning and they see their enemies. They see the people who had mistreated them for 400 years. They see the people who are trying to kill them dead on the seashore. So they sing praises to God. Now, throughout their journey, Israel would face some trouble. I mean, even in a few days, they get thirsty and they say, we should go back to Egypt. It's better off in slavery in Egypt. They, this generation, this generation, whenever problems arose, they always said, we, we should go back to Egypt but they were never bothered by the Egyptians again. The Egyptians never again bothered Israel. They never had to face Egypt in battle. They never had to face Egypt as they were pursuing them. God had destroyed their enemies. So this shows us the second thing. God, and God covers us with his power. God destroys our enemies to set us free. Now here, real quick. As a child of God, you have no enemies that are flesh and blood. None. Well, my neighbor, he sure is an idiot. He's not your enemy. Democrats aren't your enemy. Nancy Pelosi ain't your enemy. Donald Trump ain't your enemy. You have no enemies that are flesh and blood. God has put those people in your life for you to reach them with the gospel. They're not your enemy, they're potential children of God. So when I say God destroys your enemy, don't think, oh, that girl, that, second, that woman at work who always steals my lunch, God's going to destroy her. No, he's not. God loves her. God wants her to get the gospel. And maybe, maybe when you pack your lunch, put a gospel track in there, right? Amen? Something. Be kind to her. Bring an extra lunch for her. I don't know. But your enemies are not flesh and blood. They are loved and cherished. People are loved and cherished by God, and we are his ambassadors to even those people we don't get along with to give them the gospel. But we do have spiritual enemies. We have spiritual enemies that God will destroy to set us free. Hey, look, if you're a child of God, God has destroyed death for you. Death is not your enemy anymore. As a child of God, or if we have people who, are, who, who die in our life, who they are children of God, death's not our enemy. Death is victory because when a believer dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's like, oh, a believer, they lost the battle to cancer. No, they didn't. They won. God healed them. Death has no power over us anymore. The grave has no power over us anymore. Hell has been destroyed for the child of God. You know, as a believer, I will never, ever, 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 not one second, even have to smell the fire in hell. Never. And look, 
I love the smell of wood burning, but I'm, I'm assuming it's a different smell. I'm assuming hell is a little more pungent than, you know, a fireplace. God's defeated that for me. He's destroyed that for me. I never have to worry about it. I never have to see it. Never have to, have to smell it. Never have to worry about it at all. God has destroyed that for me. God's destroyed the power and the punishment of sin for us. We are free from those because of God. Because we are covered by his power, we are free. You know what that means? That means that besetting sin you struggle with, God can destroy it for you. He's already destroyed the power it has over you. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's up on the screen. <clears throat> there is no temptation taken you but this is common to man. That, you know what I mean? That, that besetting sin you struggle with where you think, no one else knows what I'm going through. No one else knows what I'm facing. No one else struggles with this. Yeah, ain't nothing new. Everything you struggle with is common to man. So I know you think you are a special snowflake, but you're not. Your besetting sin is just as bad as everybody else's. It's like, oh, no, no one knows what I'm going through. Yeah, they do. Jesus knows. There's no temptation taken you, but it's just common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer to you to be tempted above that which you are able. So people always say, God won't put more on you than you can handle. It's not what this verse says. He says that he won't, you won't be tempted above to be able to, what you are able to handle, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. So the Bible doesn't say God's ever going to tempt you so much. You know, God's going to put so much on you that you can handle. No, the Bible says whatever temptation you face, God always gives you a way to escape it. Whatever it is. Whatever temptation to lust, to cheat, to commit adultery, to look at pornography, to steal, to lie, to whatever, whatever you're facing, whatever temptation you have to sin, you don't have to sin because every time you're tempted, God gives you a way to get out from that temptation, gives you a way to avoid committing that sin. Well, then why do we sin? Because we want to. Because we don't look for the way. We don't look for, the Bible, the word, it says flee from idolatry. The word flee there means literally to escape from danger. God has freed us and destroyed our enemy so we can escape from it. So why do we struggle? Because like Israel, we always want to go back to those old things. We always want to go back to what God's freed us from. Even though God, just, God destroyed Egypt. Israel wakes up and sees the Egyptian nation ruined. Four days later, we should go back to Egypt. It's better in Egypt. We were better off. In, let's go back and be slaves in Egypt. Slaves to who? The whole army's dead. There's no one to enslave you. But every time they face trouble, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. So why do we struggle with sin? Because every time we struggle, every time something comes up, let's go back to this. Let's go back to Egypt. We run back to what God has freed us from, but we don't have to. God has covered us with his power and he has freed us from what enslaves us. You know, God has done all this for the nation of Israel, but he's also done it for us. You, as a child of God, are a consecrated people. God has a purpose for you. You are called 
to remember what he has done for you. You are compelled by the Holy Spirit as his child. You are compelled by the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you and direct you and show you God. And you are, you are covered by God's power. But why does God do that for us? Why did God do it for Israel? God did it all for Israel because he was going to use them to save the world. He used Israel to bless the world and he wants to use you and me to bless the world as well. See, God does all this to give us the strength and the power and the courage to share the message of salvation. You know, God didn't consecrate you for you. He did it for his kingdom. He doesn't want you to remember what he's done just to thank him, but he wants you to remember what he's done so you can serve him and share what he's done with other people. Can you imagine when Israel comes across another nation, and sometimes, sometimes they came across a nation and had to wipe them out, but sometimes they came and they, they kind of talked. When, Israel's ta when Moses is talking to someone, he says, hey, let me tell you about our God. Our God, we were enslaved for 400 years and God freed us in an incredible way. And then we were leaving. Man, the, the people that God freed us from, they came down and they were going to destroy us. But God protected us and then God wiped them out. And they tell the incredible story of the Red Sea. It makes those nations who don't know God say, well, tell, tell me more about your God. So God wants us to remember what he's done for us so that we share it with other people. The lost can say, well, well, I want that, why don't you tell me a little bit more about your God. Share what he's done for you so we can bring others to the saving knowledge of him. He gave us the Holy Spirit to compel us and lead us to serve him. And he covers us with his power to use us for his glory. See, as a child of God, you have a purpose in God's kingdom. And it's more than just getting saved and coming to church and going to heaven. It's to love him, to love people and to remember and share what he has done for you to those who are still in darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.